So uh, I'm Daniel Goodman and uh, come from Cambridge, famous for clever people. <laughs> um, great, really fantastic to be, to be here. Uh, City Church Cambridge um, is a church of about 400 now. And uh, it was planted in 1993. So in 1993, it was just a couple of people in someone's front room. And uh, this church didn't exist. Borders didn't exist. And yet, since that time, City Church Cambridge has been established and is flourishing. King's has been established and is flourishing. Borders has been established and it's flourishing. So the stuff that we're talking about isn't just simply theoretical, but there's absolutely a wonderful legacy of church planting. Um, really significant, life-changing stuff. And it's great uh, as, as part of the Relational Mission family, along with um, the guys from the borders, to be here together with you at Kings and with New Ground, just part, different parts of God's church working together um, to see the gospel go forth. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm in my early 30s, 39, and uh, my <laughs> got a wife at home who's uh, Anna. She's looking after our two little boys, four and two. I think it, it can be helpful to know a little bit about who you're listening to. Um, so I was born in West Africa, and my parents were missionaries, so I'm a missionary kid. And when they went to West Africa, uh, it was the 70s, early 70s, it was the era of Idi Amin in Uganda doing horrendous things, and my parents were in their mid-20s, they came to their church leaders and said, they had two little girls at that time, my big sisters, we want to go to Africa, God's called us to go, and the church leader said, no way. But they went anyway. I'm not saying that you should be rebellious against your, your church leaders, I'm just telling my true story, okay? So... Uh, they, they went into this really dangerous situation, um, Guinea-Bissau, where I was born. That, that era, lots of countries in Africa were gaining independence, and um, China and Russia were bearing in on Africa, trying to get a foothold, sponsoring things, trying to um, impress their ways of politics on, on different nations. So Guinea-Bissau was briefly a communist country from the early 70s through to sort of late 80s. And subsequently, they closed all their borders. So this tiny country, which is about the size of Wales, a really, really poor country, now a failed state in the top sort of three or four poorest countries in the world. My parents were there with a young family. I was literally born in, in a house that my dad had built, on a bed that he had built, with no doctor, just him and my mum and another missionary. Um, and that's obviously a slightly unusual upbringing. Uh, I, I can remember um, one, one evening re had been a really horrendous day. I think we'd gone to a far-flung island and come back and the, there'd been a storm and the boat had nearly gone down and it had been a rain and I was a baby in arms and that night my, my mum got out of the cupboard a tin of ravioli and the, the glories I had never known. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I can remember just recently, honestly, as, a, as an adult now, saying to my dad, I remember that night when you let me eat a whole tin of ravioli. Do, do you remember that? And he said, yeah, I do remember that. And I said, he, he said, and, and he's only told me this now, that he didn't eat anything that, that day, that many times in my childhood they didn't eat because there was no food coming into the country. So as I didn't have any realisation of that growing up as a child, I had an idyllic childhood with parents who loved me and we always sat down together to eat. But I didn't really notice that lots of the time they weren't actually eating. So I grew up with an amazing Christian example. I mean, so authentic, so genuine. Uh, they really put their money where their mouth was and uh, that was good. Uh, there, was, there was other stuff maybe that wasn't so good. Um, at that point, in missionary circles, there was uh, a sense, I'm not sure I got this from my parents, but I certainly picked it up over my childhood, that really the church was the subs bench. The missionaries, YWAM, these guys were doing the stuff. And the church were the people who couldn't quite be bothered. Um, 
And so I, I kind of grew up with, a, with an idea that if you're a pretty, pretty lame Christian, then you join a church. But if you've really been born again, you join YWAM or WEC or you go and you do stuff because the church, the church is like a declining club that's kind of like an MG owners club where you just have a few common interests, but it's got no real purpose. So my parents had an amazing relationship with God, but a, a sort of an interesting relationship with church. And even though they were there to um, plant churches and teach the Bible, uh, it, was, it was a weird thing. The, the church in Guinea had been planted a generation before by some Brits. And so the, the first church I went to um, looked like it had a sort of a pitched roof and was made of brick and had windows with these sort of arches at the top. And every other house I'd ever seen was thatched roof, circular mud hut. And in this church, all the women sat on one side and all the men sat on the other side. And uh, a, ser a, a, a sermon would be five hours easy. So what happened in this really weird building was really weird and had nothing to do with my experience or their experience. It was just like, now we're in church, we do things a totally different way. It was like you know, aping an English thing where you sit on pews, um, but they had no context for that at all. Um, during that time, my father got in touch with Terry Virgo and was writing to him, and I think his heart towards the church changed and was illuminated, and when they came back to the UK, they uh, started leading a church, and he's been leading a church for 15, 20 years. Um, and so my heart towards church has changed as well, from, from feeling that church really was second best to seeing that the church is God's eternal purpose. It says that now through the church, and uh, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting the church. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In Ephesians, it says that God gave, gave Jesus to the church to be the head. Now, try and take your head off and walk out of the room. You can't do it. Jesus is given to the church and is identified with the church and identifies himself with the church. And the church is his bride, the one he laid down his life for. The church is what Jesus is doing. And uh, my heart was transformed. I mean, I heard Terry Virgo speaking at Solid Rock at Stonely in the 90s. And I can remember a moment where it was just like, bang, I get it. And having been born in Africa, having been bilingual, having two nationalities, to come back to England as it was, although to me there was no sense of coming back, you know, it was a totally new place to me. But my parents brought us back. I, I hated it. I hated the prospect of coming back to the UK. And lots of the, my generation of missionary kids have not really come back to the UK. They've touched base here as briefly as possible and then gone to the, to the sort of back or to the ends of the earth. But when I was about 10 and I knew we were coming back to England, I prayed that God would help me. And that night I had a dream where Jesus appeared to me in England and from that moment I wanted to be in England. Um, and from the moment we landed, I've wanted to be here. My wife had an international background, I had an international background, but we both love England, we feel God's given us a heart for England, we feel he's given us a heart for the church. And uh, I moved up to Cambridge, really felt strongly that God was calling me to be part of the church there and church planting. The church in Cambridge at that point was thinking of planting a church, in, also in Cambridge. Um, and Tony Thompson and Matt Hatch ha had a prophecy for me where they said, um, you're like a paratrooper who's jumped out of an airplane and you land and you're all in your Arctic gear because you think this is an Arctic mission and actually you're in the middle of the desert. But the mission is right. So you're going to be totally ill-prepared. It's going to be really hard work. You're not going to enjoy anything of it. <laughs> and, uh, but you're in the right place doing the right thing and the mission remains the same. They, they actually got together 
two church leaders got together in private with me to give me that prophecy because it was so weighty. And it was, it was a very difficult time, but I knew that God had called us to Cambridge. I met my wife, we got married, um, tried to have children, which we weren't, able to, we weren't able to have at first. So we tried for three and a half years to have children. And um, my wife had about 60 blood tests. And uh, she's, she's an academic and a neuroscientist and works in the Brain Repair Center at Addenbrooke's part of the university. And they, they sort of decided together that she may have a brain tumor. And so they, they scanned her and sure enough, she does have a brain tumor. Um, so basically you, you can't get pregnant um, and we heard about someone in the King's Arms over in Bedford who prayed for people to get pregnant. So we went to the King's Arms and we sat through the worst service I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with what happened in the service. It was my heart. I'll be totally honest with you. I, you know, I'm sure that's a wonderful church and wonderful things are happening. I know it is. I'm not sure. I know it is. But my heart was not in a good place. And I hated everyone, and I hated everything about the service, and I couldn't find this guy that we'd gone to meet, and I was getting more and more annoyed. Eventually, we left. And just as we were walking out of the foyer, a guy walks in, and he said, you don't want praying for pregnancy, do you? And I said, yes. And he said, right. He was really cross. Right. Well, I was here for about 20 minutes, and I, I didn't really like what was happening, so um, I went home. And uh, I, I've, I've been walking 45 minutes home. I stopped at the petrol station, got some coke, and God said, go back, you've got to pray for someone. So I've walked 45 minutes back here, <laughs> and he was so obviously not even trying to be gracious. <laughs> and in the foyer, he just said, let this couple get pregnant, Father, and walked out. <laughs> and, and I was already wanting to throttle someone. And we got pregnant. And we got two little boys, um, four-year-old and a two-year-old. And it's just grace. I tell you what, it is just the grace of God. That guy was not in a good place. I wasn't in a good place. It didn't take, it didn't take long, but God just did something for us. Um, and we've got a real strong sense of being called to Cambridge. Um, at a particular time when it really, really was tough, as this prophecy had, had said, we were looking to, to escape, basically. And a few, a few people in the same week asked me to come and join two different churches. And we desperately wanted to go. But we prayed and God didn't say anything. So we knew that he had said, come to Cambridge, and that was the last we heard. So with gritted teeth, we told these other people, we can't come, God's called us to be in Cambridge. And um, the, the next day, and I, and I had to literally phone a few people and say, no, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And I had to tell our church leader, I'm staying. And the next day, New Frontiers got together for prayer and fasting, and two different people at two different times who didn't know me came up to me and said, I'm really sorry, I know I don't know you, but somehow God is saying to you, you need to be in Cambridge. Two different people, after we'd made the decision. That confirmation is just so clear to us. So we know God's called us. We know that God loves the church. And now I, I'm leading the church in Cambridge. And a situation occurred where um, our, we've got about 100 children under the age of 11 on a Sunday morning. And we've got a warehouse um, without many auxiliary rooms. And so we needed to do something to house these children. So I had a plan drawn up to make an extension on the building. So it was about a seven meter extension, and it was priced by three different firms at two million pounds. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a reasonably young church leader, young in terms of experience of church leadership, and someone says, okay, two million pounds for you to do this kids work on Sunday. And I tell you what, I just stopped in my tracks, and I thought, if I had two million pounds, which we don't, to spend on building this church, is that how I would spend it? Think of it in these terms. You, the congregation, raise two million pounds, give it to your leaders, entrust it to them, and they spend it on one and a half hours a week where you entrust your children to their care in the children's work at the cost of two million pounds, 
for an hour and a half a week, and then you hand them back for the next seven days with no two million pounds and say, you disciple them. In, in those terms, it, that doesn't really add up, does it? So it really made me, and I'm not against buildings because we have to do this. So we are going to have to spend about 400,000 making this happen. We've come up with a better, different solution. Because buildings facilitate community. They facilitate, facilitate discipleship and church growth. I'm, I'm a big believer in practical things like that. Very much so. But it really made me stop and think, you can end up in a really strange situation in church where you're doing a few odd things for slightly odd reasons, and you need to be careful that you're really building biblical churches, communities. And so I want to talk to you today about gospel-centered discipleship, because I think it's possible to think and no one in our circles would ever think this, that the church is the building. We're pretty proud of ourselves for the fact that we don't think the church is the building. But the church is the meeting. I think sometimes we do think the church is the meeting. The church is the leaders. When I hear people saying, I don't like that church, I don't like that church, what, meaning, what they mean is, I don't like the leaders, often. I don't like the worship. They're picking on some aspect of it, rather than the church is the people. And if God is going to hold me accountable for how I've built this church, I better know what I'm trying to do, what he's called me to do. And as David said, Jesus' final words to us are to make disciples. So if we've got two million pounds and our collective aim is to make disciples, is the best use of that money one and a half hours a week. Maybe it isn't. Maybe sometimes it is, but not necessarily. So I want to talk today about just making sure we hit the right target. You know, there's that famous story, the Olympic uh, pentathlete who had to shoot his final thing. All he had to do was hit the target and he'd get the gold medal. He was so far out the front. He hit right in the bullseye in the wrong lane. And so he didn't get any medal. And it is possible to hit the bullseye on the wrong target. So we need to be careful that we do make disciples and that, those, that, that discipleship is gospel-centered. It's not education-centered, what do you know? It's not behavior-centered, what do you do? It's gospel-centered. As churches, we have nothing to offer anyone except the gospel. The good news. It's not an elementary gate that you pass through and, and only to move on from. It is the beating heart of anything that happens in our life. It is a historical event which changes everything. And when a, someone comes to me on Alpha and says, I want to become a Christian, the gospel is the answer. But when a couple in their 60s who have been 40 year married come to me and say we're having trouble in our marriage, the gospel is the answer. So we need to learn how to do that, how to celebrate the gospel. We can only commend to others what we personally treasure. And I treasure the gospel. I mean, I've got nothing else going for me. I, I, I just love what Jesus has done for me. And I, I, I know that that's possible for others. And I don't have any other answers apart from the gospel. So we'll look at making disciples, we'll look at gospel-centered discipleship. And towards the back end, I'm going to give you some really practical, touchy, feel, like hands-on things that you can maybe make a note of, not touchy-feely, but things you can touch and feel. Um, <laughs> maybe we can't unpack them to the nth degree, but if, you, if you're taking notes, please do just make a note of a few of these things, because then over time, you can come back to them and think about them. But even today, at the end of this session, we'll do some Q&A. Okay, so hopefully Matthew will join me and possibly we can persuade David to join me as well. And um, so if, if, as I go through, questions come to your mind, please just make a note of them and, and we'll come back to them at the end. The gospel is the center. I mean, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
So we are 15 chapters into Corinthians already. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. 15 chapters in, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You received it, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So these are people who've heard the gospel, they know it, they've received it, they're standing in it. Nevertheless, Paul is reminding them of the gospel, for I delivered it to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to all these people. I always remember hearing stories about Terry Virgo from people like Joel and others who knew him would be in this house and they'd say every morning Terry would be behind closed doors worshipping God and thanking him for saving him. Here's a man who's planted hundreds of churches, been hugely influential, has got a long ministry and the thing he's grateful for is that Jesus saved him. And, and I found so much strength in that. To get happy in God, to strengthen yourself in the Lord, that the amazing liberty that comes the humility, but the confidence that when you are an enemy of God, that's when he came. So Tim Keller um, gives us this description of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation. So the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not a philosophy. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a way of motivating people. It is a historical fact. It's good news. As the angel said, it's good news of great joy. And if it's not great joy, you have not understood it. It is good news of great joy that God has accomplished. This has happened. This is available. Our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into right relationship with him. So it's about relationship and to destroy all the results of sin in the world. We need to know the gospel. We need to celebrate the gospel. We need to build churches based on the gospel, around the gospel, and that's what we need to offer people. We can't offer them, you must do better. We can't offer them, you need to learn these things. We need to offer them the gospel. Here is the truth of what has happened. So in order to become gospel fluent, that is to apply the gospel in lots of situations, I found this tool really helpful, the four questions. So I got this from a guy called Jeff Vanderstelt in the States who's written a great book called Saturate. Um, his stuff, We Are Soma, is available online and he's, I think, even spoken at a New Frontiers uh, conference in the States. When I heard him talk through these four questions, these four really simple questions, I just felt myself being born again, again, and have found it such a helpful way of processing life. So he says... Question number one is, who is God? And, and so the fancy word for that is theology, who is God? So some of you will be thinking that theology is a specialist subject for academics. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you're ever thinking about God, you're doing theology. If you're talking about God, you're doing theology. Liz, can I persuade you to be a volunteer and come up and give me a hand? Let's give Liz a warm welcome. Okay. Now, imagine David came home one night to his wife, and he said, Liz, and he started to lavish praise upon her. Isn't that sweet? Okay. If he said, Liz, I love your seven-foot Amazonian frame and your raven black hair, would she revel in that praise? Or would she be actually confused and insulted? <laughs> because we don't, we don't get to make up what God is like. We discover what God is like. God is knowable. And so for someone to be in relationship with someone and to get everything about that person wrong does not demonstrate a relationship. If he was to say those things from the bottom of his heart, he would not know what he's talking about. Thanks. So, you don't, you don't get to make this stuff up. You need to discover it. Find out what is God like. 
When, when Dave and Liz got together, they found out what each other was like. They got to know each other. And that's what we need to do. And it's not for the few. It's for every single person in relationship with God. If you are in relationship with God, you need to do theology and you are doing theology. It's just a case of whether you're doing good theology or bad theology. Who is God? It's his very being. And from that, the second question is, what has he done? And if you think in terms of what has he done through Jesus, you could call that Christology, God's doing. But that works out of his being. So often, I will say to someone, hi, you know, I could do it now, embarrass one of you and come up here and say, how, who are you? And you might tell me your name. And then I'd say, and who are you? And then whenever I do that, people just stare at me blankly for about five minutes, and then they say, I'm a plumber, or I'm a doctor. They, a, they don't know how to answer it beyond, this is what I'm called, and this is what I do. Because that's how we think about our identity. What I do. But this grid helps us to see that our identity comes a long time before we've done anything. So the third question, who are we, is totally dependent on the first two. Who am, who am I? I'm created. How do you know that? Because the creator created me. I'm created. Who, who are you, Daniel? I'm, I'm a dearly loved child of God. Well, how do you know you're a dearly loved child of God? Because the Father sent the Son so that a child of wrath could become a child of God. I'm a child of God before I've done anything. When Jesus came to the disciples and said, go into all the nations, he set it up on family rules. Family rules is we're in the family. There's no doubt about that. How we behave, well, we need to have some guidelines. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them into their new identity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Done. And teach them to obey. When the people came out of Exodus, he appeared to them and he said, I am your God. You are my people. Done. Now here's some rules for how to live. But the identity, the grace relationship, comes first. And so what we then do is, is, is utterly built on these preceding truths if it's to be gospel-centered. And this can help us to contextualize, because I know, I looked quickly on Wikipedia, that in Scotland, about 50% of the people live in the biggest six or seven cities, and about 50% of the people live in rural areas. So whatever goes out from here might be one thing, or it might be the other. It might be urban, it might be rural, and so the question four, well, what do we do? That can be contextualized, okay? So how the church in the persecuted world gathers will look different from how we in the free world gather, but we still gather. But how you do it will be contextualized. And I'm one type of person and you're another type of person, so how you're obedient, for example, prayer, how you pray might be different amongst yourselves. But the reasons why you pray would be the same. These are the imperatives. And it helps us to not give people non-gospel answers. So someone comes to you on a Sunday morning and they say, I'm really worried. And you helpfully say to them, don't worry. And if you're really spiritual, then you might say, don't worry, because the Bible tells you not to worry. That is not gospel help, okay? Just for example, give me a hypothetical pastoral issue that might come up in your church, and I'll just try and take you through these four questions to get it to a gospel center. So give me a pastoral problem. No one wants to reveal their hand. <laughs> Sorry? Same-sex marriage. Okay, same-sex marriage. Here's what I would do. Um, we want to, I want to marry someone of my, my own sex, so 
That's what they want to do. That's question four, okay? So from question four, I'm gonna try and walk them back up. So this is what you want to do, and I'm trying to help you at this point not to do that. So you believe that you want to do this because you believe that you are gay, okay? And that there's no, and that, that if you are gay, then you have to live a life consistent with that part of you that feels that way. I would try to help that person to see that God created them, he's the designer, and because he created them, question two, they are created beings. And therefore, they need to live consistent with their created purposes. So if I was to take my Samsung Galaxy smartphone, and I was to say, I just need to do some DIY and put this nail in the wall, and I took the nail, and I took my Samsung phone, and I went bang, 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 and it broke, and I wrote to the manufacturers and said, your phone doesn't work, they would be well within their rights to say that was not its purpose, wouldn't they? We gave you a product which had a specific design for which it worked, we gave you instructions, but by not obeying those instructions, you destroyed the product, okay? That's your fault. And we would all agree that that's true, wouldn't we? So I would try to help this person to see that they, they don't need to get fulfillment from this marriage that this way they're feeling is a distortion of how they've made to be. It's, it's a result of the fall. And I, I, if, if someone says that they're gay, I would take that at face value and try to help them to live as a gay person a doctrinally orthodox life where they put God first. And so you could use any number of gospel things. You could say, well, your life is not your own. You, Christ died for you. You died with Christ. Now you're raised with Christ. Your identity is in Christ. This is who you are. You're not, being gay is not who you are. But if you were just to simply address it on the level of, um, we just don't accept that behavior, what, what you're offering them is you're offering them either rebellion or legalism. Okay, because they can either do it out of respect for you or out of fear of God, but with no heart change, or they totally reject it and walk away. But if they believe that the God who loved them and when they were enemies died for them and was, has beaten death is supernaturally powerful, how much more with him on, on their side can they succeed in life in that way? So these four questions really help us, I think, to get to gospel fluency, a gospel center in a way that isn't glib. And I'm not saying this is easy, okay? I'm not saying it's simple. But it is so important that we don't give people cheap answers. And we don't give people moralistic answers. We don't let them become the older brother. And we don't let them become the younger brother just rebelling and running in the opposite direction. But we say something has happened which can change this situation for you. So our disciple making needs to be gospel-centered. Jeff van der Stel gives us a great uh, description of what a disciple is. I think I found this so helpful. A disciple is someone who is increasingly worshipping Jesus, being changed by Jesus and obeying Jesus in all of life and helping others to do the same. So we'll just unpack that for a second. I've got a little graphic here. A disciple is someone who is increasingly doing these things. When Jesus said to his disciples, come follow me, they got to live with him, go with him, move with him, see him feed the 5,000, see him walk on water, see him calm the storm, see him do all sorts of amazing things, thousands of people healed, the gospel preached, the Sermon on the Mount, they were there. And when he appears to them in his resurrected um, state after his death and resurrection, he appears to them on the mountain and he gives them the Great Commission. It says they met him there on the mountain and some doubted. The nerve. <laughs> Three years on the inside with Jesus and... Some doubted, but we know that to be true, don't we? You, a disciple is not perfect. A disciple is increasingly. We're in, this is a process, and if it's a process, it will only end on the day of judgment. So there's no one anywhere on earth now who doesn't need discipleship. 
So disciples are increasingly worshipping Jesus. They delight in him. They're increasingly changed by Jesus, and they're increasingly obeying Jesus in all of life. And I find that such a challenge because whatever culture you come from, there are strongholds. And in Cambridge, it's, it's probably money. You get to talk to me about anything you like, but do not talk to me about money. Or perhaps even another one is children, okay? One of the big pressures in church life is the beast of busyness. And if you say we want to have missional life, we want to do stuff, and the parents come to you and say, we can't do that because my daughter's at violin this day, badminton that day, horse riding that day, ballet that day, piano that day, extra Latin lessons, this, 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 this. And basically turning them into Einstein is dominating your life. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be good stewards of your children. You should. But don't make any part of your life no-go. If you're going to do that, decide to do that in the, in the light of day with God behind you, helping you make decisions like that to support your family. But don't let there be any parts of your life which are out of bounds. Jesus said, come and die. He didn't say, invite me into your heart. He didn't say, put your hand up. So we need to, if we're called to make disciples, as Jesus said, go and make disciples. If we're called to make disciples, we need to know what one is, don't we? Otherwise, how do you know if you're doing it? And, and, and I soon got tired of leading a church where I could go away on Sunday night and think, wow, the coffee was hot, the band was tight, the sermon was sound. <sighs> so what? Or the coffee was cold, the band was a bit rubbish, the sermon was a bit off. Now, it's good to have a tight band, and you've got a tight band. It's good to have hot coffee, and you've got hot coffee. And it's good to have sound biblical teaching. But that, that in itself will not accomplish the Great Commission. So let's get really, really practical. Let's go to the next slide. Paul said, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. Paul said, imitate me. Now imagine you're person A. In your life, you have different groups. Architects know this because they design buildings in such a way that you can accommodate these different groups. If you go into a huge, sprawling shopping center, you will see that they've created intimate spaces and medium-sized spaces for people to socialize. In coffee shops, two or three at a table, then a bigger group. In a school, the same. You have your big assembly hall, but then you have smaller and smaller rooms, okay? On a Sunday morning, I'm preaching, and uh, there's 400 people at City Church over two services, so I'm looking at about 200 people at any given time. I can't, hand on heart, say to 400 people, you know how I lived. I can say, you know how I lived whilst I was preaching in front of you, can't I? But I can't say, you know how I lived when I was amongst you, because when do they see me? They see me on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. We need to be careful to understand these different dynamics that are going on, because if my expectation when I get to heaven is, well, I gave them a really good example of how to preach a sermon, Jesus will say, well, that's not exactly what I said. You've, kind of, you've heard a little bit of what I said. You must preach the gospel. You must proclaim it. But you need to disciple people. And so in our lives, we have our intimate group. Maybe your spouse, maybe a best friend. Then you have a wider group. It might be your small group. But there are things that will happen in an intimate friendship that won't happen in a, in a, in a small group. So for lots of time, I, I've really felt, let's just get accountability going in small groups. Let's get these 12 people, 14 people, 16 people, let's get them being accountable to each other. That's not going to happen. 16 people aren't going to be open, completely open with each other at heart level and totally open up with 16 people. You might get subgroups within that group doing this. But you also need to be careful that you're creating a culture where these things can happen. That I, I can't lead a church where I can say to 400 people, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. But I can build a church of 400 people where some people know how I lived when I was amongst them. And everybody knows how someone godly lived amongst them. And it can't always be the leaders. So we are all called to make disciples, all of us. You can have this weird contract where the church gets together and they decide they're going to pay someone, a professional... So you say this contract, we'll pay you, and we'll attend, 
and we'll encourage you and you'll do the stuff. And the Bible says that he gave these gifts to equip the saints for works of service. So leaders need to be working with church congregations so that they are making disciples. So you guys, whether you are directly on the front line of church planting or not, need to enter into obedience to the Great Commission by making disciples and by being a disciple. And um, try to understand that there are different group sizes where things can or can't happen. So you can get a great preacher proclaiming the truth in a big group, but not everyone can preach, because if you've got a big group and you only want one sermon, then you only need one preacher. It's a great way to hear information, but it's not a great way to observe each other's lives. We all know instinctively that Sunday mornings are not everyday life. I'm a big fan of Sunday morning meetings. I'm not against meetings, okay? I've given my life to the church, for the church. But I'm trying to be open-handed with God. What are the things that really matter? And rather than saying it's not Sunday, I'm saying Sunday is not sufficient to do all of the Great Commission. So what, as well as Sunday, do we need to be giving ourselves to to make this happen? So the second quick idea is just about learning environments, okay? The classroom, immersion, and apprenticeship. Just ask yourself, in your church, which of these are you strong in and which are you weak in? We need to make fully orb disciples. Now, if you think a disciple is someone who can pass a theology exam, you might be happy just to do classroom. Classroom might be a Sunday morning meeting. You have to sit and listen. Listen by faith, of course, and be obedient to that, but it's essentially a classroom context where information is being expounded and faith is being imparted. But if you were to learn a language, let's say you wanted to learn Spanish, you would, you would get some sort of teaching. You might be able to do that on YouTube. But if you could add to that someone who would sit next to you and say, well, okay, try to pronounce that word, and you pronounce it, and they say, no, that's not how you pronounce it, it's like this, and then they show you, that apprenticeship would really help you, wouldn't it? And then people who are really serious about learning a language will go to that country. They'll be surrounded by it, the immersion. I think we need to be really intentional in terms of making disciples about including these different environments. And if you can get all three happening, you're really going to help people to grow. I'm not a huge fan of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. I don't think you see Jesus doing that, really. I think a, a, an obvious danger is that whatever weakness you have, you reproduce in someone else. So I think it's much healthier and safer to do it in small groups, so threes or twelves or however, however you're doing it and to try and get these different environments going. And it's, it's, we're not called to sort of slick, easy systems. We're called to sacrificial servant leadership. And so if I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, I'll make it my aim to, to be available for about half an hour, 40 minutes, just to answer questions from people and interact with them. I've, I've had the privilege of you giving me half an hour of your time to listen. The least I can do is serve you by listening to your questions and interacting to, with you. I've done the classroom, but now I want to come along and try to do some apprenticeship where I hear you and I interact with you. It's, it's be easier to sneak out the back. But we're called to servant leadership and to, to love people and to help them. Finally, the final idea, and then we'll get some Q&A going, is this idea of the, the sort of culture of your church. This comes from Mike Breen's stuff. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this. He talks about the fact that Jesus created a high relational, high invitational, and highly challenging environment for his disciples. Jesus said, come and follow me. I mean, how much more invitational is that? Be my flatmates for the next three years and, and come on tour with me. And eat what I eat with me, go where I go, be involved with my mission, help me, let's do this together. There was a high sense of invitation, a high sense of relationship, but also a high challenge. I will make you fishers of men. You know, Jesus, we don't have enough food. Will you provide it? Again and again, Jesus brought really high challenge. We know that. If you don't have that, you can end up in one of these other church cultures, which is not productive. So 
it may be that a church has to go through a, a season where it's highly challenging and there aren't enough people for it to be mega relational, but you need to get through that quickly. Anything's possible for a, a season, but it's not, it's not ideal and don't stay there. I've, I've found so many churches or even just areas of my own church where I think these people are now in a highly stressed situation because they're doing a massive challenge and there's no one supporting them, so they're stressed. Or there's no relationship, there's no challenge, it's just dull. Or it's really loving and lavish, but there's no challenge. It's just cozy. It's kind of like a chaplaincy where someone just comes and loves you and strokes your hair and tries to make you feel better. And sometimes, honestly, in all honesty, church leaders can be a bit tempted to create that in order to attract people. I don't think you'd want to do that for very long before you realize the error of your ways. But uh, my friend Tom Shaw in Canterbury has been trying to press into this particularly, and they, they, they have found that rather than finding the challenge difficult, they've found the relationship difficult. If as a church you're wanting to create high relationship, high invitation, is that easy, hard, natural, it's what we're called to. Because we're a family in relationship with each other so that you can say to people, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. You can give them an example. And often the challenge, whilst sometimes you have to explicitly challenge someone, I found a lot of the time you're just challenged by being around someone. The way you spend your money challenges me. The way you give generously, that challenges me. You don't have to address it with me for me to feel challenged. The way you deal with your kids. I know a couple of church leaders who went to a conference together and uh, they were asked, what's the biggest thing you learned from the conference? Well, the biggest thing one of them learned was that whilst he was with his friend, both of them professionals, as it were, he saw his friend on Skype with his kids and he realized that he had a terrible relationship with his children once he'd seen what a good relationship with, his, with children looked like. And that's not that person addressing an issue in life. It's just someone seeing your life and being impacted by it. Uh, and that happens through the Bible. You are a city on a hill. Let your light so shine that people respond to it. Or in Peter it says, they will ask you, what is the reason for your life? I once, this is my only glory story in this department, but when I was an 18-year-old at Sixth Form College, I was reading my Bible a lot and worshipping God in the morning, and I can remember waiting outside in the corridor for a particular lecture, and one of the other students grabbed me by my lapel, slammed me up against the wall, and said, why are you always happy? <laughs> <laughs> and they were so angry. And <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to be happy, I just was happy. And that's, I think that's a, what is the reason for this hope? It's not, let me give you a presentation, then I'll answer your questions. It's, wow, people see your life, and that demands an explanation. So you've got to have a life that demands an explanation, and you've got to have proximity to people so that they can respond. Does that make sense? So, just to conclude, the right target, make sure that we are trying to make disciples. Not converts, not events. You need converts, you need events, you need meetings, you need ministries, okay? But they're not what you're trying to produce. Please make sure that it's gospel-centered. What else is there? Any other answer you give will be sub-Christian. It will be moralism, or it will prompt people to rebellion, be legalism. We want to give them good news of great joy. That means we need to understand it. And I've just given you some ideas about ways of thinking about it, because the Bible says, if anyone's got a gift of leadership, let him do it diligently. I think it's, it's important for us to carefully build Paul said, like a master builder, he's tried to do this thing. We need to take that and really try and build well and sensibly and not just inherit all the patterns of the past unquestioningly, but build upon them and do so as well as we possibly can. Think about all the resources that the church has been given. Jesus, the gifts of the Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, finances, building. How can we position these things to best make disciples together of all the nations? If there aren't any more questions, then we're going to um, just sing one worship song to end, which will really be a gospel-focused one. So if the band could come up. Um, I just want to quickly, you guys can have a seat, I just want to briefly go back to the pastoral question that was posed about the same-sex marriage. Um, Trying to think about that actually was quite a tough one to try and take through a gospel grid. But having thought about it for a couple of minutes, here, here's what I would do. I think you, you could take the, you're a created being and you need to, uh, you can and are able to act in accordance with your creation. And you don't get to be the God of your life. There is a God who's died for you. I think there's also an aspect of just being honest about the cost of discipleship. So I would say to this, this person, you, you need to not do this, take this course of action, and that will be sacrificial for you. That will be an enormous cost. And it's not just gay people who have to make a relational cost in life, uh, in churches. There are lots of um, other people in our church who also, because they want to honour God, have had to make relational choices about who they marry and things like that. And I would say... Jesus, God is faithful. That's who he said he is. That's who he is. He's faithful. And he came and he died for you to make you into his bride. And right now, he is faithfully waiting for the consummation of that marriage. You have one that you can look to who's being faithful to you. And it's costly for you to be faithful to him. But because of that relationship, because of what he's done for you, that, that can happen. So I would encourage them with the truth of the sacrifice, but they can be sacrificial on the basis that Jesus died for them. When they were enemies of God, he made them alive, he befriended them, he laid down his life for them. And it's, that's who they are. They're loved and cherished. And he is now faithfully preparing them for himself, waiting for them. And that's a glorious thing. And I think that's maybe a more helpful way of trying to give this person gospel hope and gospel truth about the cost of it. But to say that this thing that you really think is the answer isn't the answer. You've got to believe in a true God, not a false God. And you need to repent, all of us need to repent of ever believing in false gods. Any kind of wrong thinking, it almost always ends up in really believing in a false God. And we need to repent of that, which means turn around and believe in a true God. We need to know who God is and what he's done and who we are because of that. Okay. Well, let's... I've asked for a really narrative gospel song that we can just celebrate together and um, so we can treasure it and commend it to others. So let's stand and uh, rejoice in this.